Hey, everybody. Welcome to Social Beauty Makers, the podcast, where every Sunday and Wednesday, we'll bring you fast-paced, powerful 15, occasionally 20-minute conversations meant to inform, educate, and inspire around a variety of topics, including trends in all things tech for the professional salon industry. Today, I'm here to talk specifically about the big topic of compensation and the, um, yeah, kind of often triggering uh, for many of us uh, question as to how much do professionals earn? Um, and kind of around the edges of that, they're related. How do we improve the image of professionals in our larger world? I'm Gordon Miller, your podcast host. Thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. So today, I am here to talk about one of my biggest pet peeves, and that is the public perception of the industry around wages, our collective reaction to that, and what it all might mean for the industry. And I kind of want to wrap this around two big ideas, um, one being nuance, which is kind of that subtle differences across the industry that make us so unique. Um, and also the need today more than ever, perhaps for authenticity, quote unquote, um, and how we talk about issues like this one. To get started, um, I want to um, say that the big conversation around income is about two things, the reality of earnings versus perception. And the perception around the government's take on earnings and what that is all about as well. To add context to the conversation, I'm going to talk about compensation data, um, what we know and don't, and what we can take away from both. So let's start with the data that's actually out there. The, the only real data that's available to the public, um, as, as the industry itself, we don't really have any, um, or any that's reliable or meaningful, um, two different things relative to the question at hand. And by meaningful, I mean that you can kind of take whatever data we do have and kind of spread it across the industry in a way that makes sense for the young person considering a career, you know, and, and that is a challenge. Now, as somebody who loves technology, I'm obsessed with artificial intelligence these days. So I used AI to find the following information, but I did what any good researcher is doing today, use AI as your research assistant and then take that information and do a little bit of checking around to make sure that, that what it says is correct. And my AI told me that, quote, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, as of May 2020, the median annual wage for hairdressers, hairstylists, and cosmetologists in the U.S. was $28,770, which translates to about $13.82 per hour. All right. Some of you are triggered. <laughs> um, I get it. And that trigger usually in a public setting, social media, I'll say, leads to a uh, kind of a collective industry response. So that's not right. Um, and it's not right because of all the tax evasion that's going on in salons. Let me pause and say here, uh, that, is not a look, that is not a good look for the industry. Um, think about this. Um, and again, we hear this so often. It's kind of the only thing we hear. So I want to go to beauty school, mom. And mom's reaction is, you know, they, hear, they just don't make that much money. I I saw this report. Actually, I Googled it because I knew you were going to be talking about, to me about this. So I Googled it and I found out the average hairdresser makes $28,000 and we have much greater expectations of you than that. So I don't, I don't know if we can support this. Mom, they make a lot of money. They just cheat on their taxes. So it's all good. I want to be a hairdresser. Um, not to make light, and I am. Um, but seriously, like, again... If that's our response, um, we have some bigger issues um, because, um, yeah, 
other people that cheat on their taxes in this industry and every other industry in America? Yes. And so I, 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 I'd say, you know, uh, since it's kind of all around us, um, I don't know that we should be hanging our hat on this particular one. Now, going back to my AI, the, it also said, however, after it talks about 1380 per hour, however, the top 10% of hairdressers and cosmetologists earn more than $50,000 per year, while the lowest 10% earned less than $18,980 per year. All right. I'm sure that still left some people triggered. But it does kind of add a little bit of nuance to the conversation, right? It adds that kind of low and kind of top end around that median number. And um, I'd say, you know, there's just kind of a lesson in that, you know, and, and that is that we actually are in a very complex industry. The salon itself is complicated when it comes to compensation, when it comes to job category, business models, all that sort of stuff. So it's our job to kind of unpeel the proverbial onion that is our industry um, because again, we're complex and we're nuanced and our industry has many, many, many layers. And, you know, I've always thought of the industry as one filled with all kinds of opportunities for all kinds of professionals. And, you know, when we think career, especially as we're speaking to people thinking about coming into the industry or people who are in it in school or otherwise, we need to be smarter about our messaging. Um, because the big reality is we've not proven that the government, government numbers are wrong in spite of this conversation going on for more than 30 years, more than 30 years. I've been personally poking sticks at this conversation within the industry for all of those 30 years and it often gets me in trouble. Um, and if we think the government's not correct, then we need to do our job and bring more data to the table. Not just our opinions, just not just our personal points of view, because by the way, on the tax evasion thing, also an opinion, you know, no one can talk about how much tax evasion everybody leans on tips, you know, and again, it's just not something that people want to hear, number one. And it, it doesn't really speak to the bigger issue of what are people really making? Now, again, those, those government numbers are coming from W-2s, so they're based on something. Um, and I actually believe that those government numbers kind of are what they are relative to the data that they're pulling. But what most people don't understand about that data, meaning W-2s, is that close to two-thirds of the industry doesn't get W-2s. So we've got renters, we've got independents, we've got freelancers you know, who are self-employed. We've got salon owners who are self-employed who may not have W-2s. That group together, you know, again, is over 60% of the industry. So they're left out. So we know the numbers are, 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 are kind of wonky if we just consider that. If we also consider that when we look at careers in our industry, that 80% of professionals who come into the industry, you know, straight out of school, they're gone in just the first few years. And what we hear most often is income is one of the main reasons they leave the industry. And I would argue that because we don't have good data, we just talk about six-figure hairdressers and all the opportunity. And we don't put much around that at all. Like, how long does it take to get there? Um, so when you just hear that it's a really great life, it's a really great career, and you can make a lot of money and do anything you want to do, and your reality is so much different, and you just can't see that. You just can't see around that next corner because of what's in front of you today. And it just feels disconnected. I, I think it's a big part of why so many people leave. Their expectations have not been set properly. 
And one of the challenges so many of us have with even approaching that without data is that we project ourselves and our own experience onto all of it. So all of my friends are hairdressers. It's just because I've been doing this so long, like all of them. And most of them are pretty darn successful. And so if I just look at my little circle and universe of kind of direct understanding of the industry, forget everything else I know, you know, then I would easily project out that, yeah, everybody's a six-figure hairdresser, you know, and that all kinds of opportunities there. Just, just go out and find it. Um, but that's wrong. You know, that's, um, even if it was true, it would be wrong because I only know what I know. And again, we need this kind of bigger umbrella effort to kind of niche out all the different parts of the industry and, and just, and tell a complete story to anybody who's thinking about this. So why not, you know, look at compensation through the filter of all the different layers of our onion. <laughs> um, and I'm going to start with, I think the most important and, and the one that kind of skews the numbers that the government has in, in a way that's, that's kind of painful for all of us, but it never gets talked about. And that's part-time versus full-time. 61% of the industry is now part-time. That was as of two years ago. I'd say it's probably closer to 65%. So in that $28,000 number, more than half the people are part-time. If we did what are called full-time equivalencies, which is taking a part-time person and doing the math to make them full-time in appearance, in a sense, for, as an exercise. In other words, if we looked at the industry as all the same so that we weren't mixing apples and oranges when we talk compensation, and we took a part-time person, we extrapolated them to full-time based on their hourly, um, those numbers would change. That 28,000 with, with very little else done to it you know, um, would probably approach 40,000. Doesn't make it the right number? But it's a different number and it's a more accurate number uh, in certain ways because it would be dealing with full-time to full-time and not part-time as part of this bucket that distorts everything. Another filter to look through is levels of experience. People who've been in this industry, let's say, you know, three years or more. We know that the first couple of years, the first three years, let's say, are difficult. We know we lose a lot of people there more than any other segment of careers. Big, big fall off. Um, also, people are building their income. Specialization explains a lot. You know, um, if you're specialized in extensions today, you're likely killing it. And so when we start to look across the job spectrum and really collect that data, because again, we talk about all these different opportunities. Well, what does it look like financially? I mean, it's nice that you're telling me I could do all these different things, but like, what does that mean financially? Is it a step forward, a step backwards, a step sideways? another filter, type of employer um, or type of business model that you're participating in. Um, definitely significant differences potentially in income. And, you know, how do we take that part of the story and connect it to our bigger compensation story? Um, and, you know, so again, um, a lot to consider in all of these niches. Um, I, I think, again, the most powerful one is that full-time equivalence uh, idea help you understand it a little better. I'm going to take a real simple example. So let's pretend that I live in a universe of two professionals and we are it. We are the entire profession. It's me and I work behind the chair and I make $100,000 a year. Those are my wages. And um, my, probably my mortal enemy, the only other person in the industry <laughs> um, is um, exactly the same as me, has the same potential, um, makes the same as me, but works half the hours and therefore, in this example, makes half the income. So I make 100, this other person makes $50,000 a year and works 50% of what I work. 
Together, we make $150,000. The industry's average is $75,000. And if you think about those two numbers, that, that's, that's a huge distortion. And because there's only two of us, we're each going to have troubles with that number, you know, because it, it doesn't tell the story clearly at all. And so, again, uh, if we did the full-time equivalent uh, calculation, which is a real calculation that statisticians make, we would both be 100,000, right? Because that 50,000 person who is absolutely part-time is at full-time equivalent, 100,000. 100 and 100 is 200 divided by two is 100,000. Um, and of course, there would be a footnote saying that half the industry works part-time and we've made adjustments for that in our calculation. So, you know, full transparency, you know, authenticity, apples to apples, um, a very simple, simple idea that for some reason we just don't, uh, haven't been able to tackle. And again, all those different things um, are just so important that we think about, again, the business models, I think is really crucial since two thirds of the industry um, are not really getting W-2s. And I, I think that number is not far off. So super, super important. Salon categories, I'm going to give a simple example, intercoiffure. Um, the best of the best salons in this country, many of them belong to intercoiffure. As a membership criteria, uh, I believe this is still true. If you don't Bring, you have to bring in a minimum of a million dollars a year to even be considered for membership. And they go through an audit. There's all kinds of process things that you have to do. So it's, you know, it's a documented group of salons, you know, who, who do really well. And all the people I've met over the years, I, I have the impression um, that those working at Intercoiffure salons do very well. Um, to do a, a data analysis of those salons would be fascinating, number one. And I'll bet you that it would point out that there's groups of people in the industry who do really, really well. So again, as a young person, if I saw some of that data, I'd be like, hmm, I want to go to work in one of those salons one day. Because again, I have all these different options available to me. And I understand what they all mean because I've got data. Looking, look at um, some of the more luxurious um, or luxury-based salons. Um, the L'Oreal Professional Salons, the Aveda-affiliated salons, Arnco, um, Orbe, you know, these are salons working at a certain level. And I would think if those companies were to survey the people who work in their salons, I think that they would find income numbers that far exceed what the government's reporting. And again, it doesn't make the government wrong. It's just that we're, we're adding really, really important context, you know, especially for young people. You know, being real can be so powerful. And again, we have such a great story to tell. I've done this for decades. I know we have a great story. I just don't have the data always to do it. So we're, you know, we're telling the stories we know, but we should be able to add to that, you know, some proof points. Um, again, young people, expectations are everything. And so again, without the data, you know, we, we definitely, you know, have problems. Again, we tend to have this thing that's, that's happened to us. I don't know if it's a pandemic thing. I think it was, it's, it's been around for years, but it's become... I don't know, really top of mind for a lot of people. And I've just had it happen so much in the last couple of years that when people start talking about the opportunities in the industry, they jump to all the jobs that you can have with a license. It's like they almost skip over doing hair and go straight to, oh my God, people need to be aware of all the jobs that you can have in this, in this industry. And it's true. I mean, there's all kinds of things that you can do. But again, you know, we, we need to put some reality around all of that. First off, it frustrates me because I think it diminishes the salon. It diminishes the hairdresser working behind the chair that when we jump to it so quickly, because it's not usually a conversation about 
all of the different opportunities in the salon followed by, you know, and if at a certain point in your career, you, you know, you want to make some further life changes, you can go this direction or that direction, you know, that's fine. But again, what is the reality? What I hear most often is, my gosh, you know, you can be an educator. I love educators. They're my favorite, 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 favorite people in the industry. It's so powerful what they do. They're, they're life-changing in so many ways. And just like the rest of educators in America, across so many different industries and categories, they make less than the professionals. So if you choose to be an educator, more than likely you're going to make less money. Um, that is not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself at all. But we don't talk about that. You can go to work in a, in a store. I hear this on that list. Um, yeah, you're going to make a lot less money. You can be a platform artist. Um, even a lot of platform artists make less money than working hairdressers. Um, but big picture, we've, we've never had so few platforms um, in, in my lifetime. And they're continuing to shrink. Shows are getting smaller. Main stages are disappearing. Brands are doing fewer events. I mean, there just aren't as many platforms. And so not easy to get there. And there is a path to get there. And that doesn't get talked about. Um, you can be a sales rep. I hear that all the time too. Um, another category that's quickly going extinct. If you look at the number of sales reps in this industry over the last you know, 10, 20 years, it's, it's just gotten to be fewer and fewer year after year. And, and following pandemic, I think, I haven't seen any data, but I, I do think it's even, even fewer. Now, all that sounds negative. I apologize for that. I'm just really, really passionate about having the data so that we can tell people coming into industry, into the industry what they need to know to make good decisions. And moving past what I just said, each, each of those categories, there's all kinds of good in it. Life's not all about money. And career, you know, is not all about money. You know, I, I've made decisions throughout my career where I've taken steps backwards financially on purpose you know, because what I was doing didn't make me happy. So I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do something different. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not all about money, but it is all about you know, setting proper expectations. Um, and I just think, you know, there's, there's so much power that, you know, comes from that for us individually, you know, as, as well as collectively, we, it's so easy for us to have, the opinions that we have about the work that we do and know about and just project it onto everything in the absence of good data. And that, again, I think is just such a big problem for the industry. Over the years, I've gotten in trouble more than a few times with some very powerful folks in this industry because of the stance that I take around this issue, much of which has been, been talked about here. I've always said, you know, the government data is the data, you know, it's, it's, it's what's out there. They're pulling it from what they have in the best way that they can. Um, because those who are not W2, it's really gets messy and complicated when you look at it, especially if you're the government. They don't understand our industry. But, but again, we have the resources. You know, we have the knowledge base. We have the people who can understand this, this, this industry's math, uh, the data, and, and, and put it together in such a way that it can make sense for, for all of us. Who's supposed to do that? You know, in, in my judgment, first and foremost, the associations. Um, that's, they're that nonprofit part of our industry that's here to make the industry um, the best it can possibly be in, by bringing people together in a variety of ways. Uh, but PR and, and pulling information and data and trying to find out where we are and where we're going, that has you know, long been the, the job in the larger world of associations. Um, after associations, and we don't have that many of them anymore, but um, you know, um, I would say after that, you've got some very big companies with a lot of resources who could easily tackle this if they chose to. Um, takes money. 
you know, and, and it takes foresight and it takes the right people putting it together so they know the right questions to ask. Um, by the way, anybody need help with that? Uh, or to socialbeautymakers.com. I would love nothing more than to be involved in that. And I volunteered over the years to many, many different groups to to help with that kind of project because it's it's so important. Um, and when we finally get there, you know, it will be really, really powerful because again, today, authenticity, not a buzzword. Um, it's something that we just have to be. Wrapped around all of this is, as I, you know, begin my little wrap up here is that my passions around this topic, they go way back for me and, and they're very consistent going back to my earlier days in the school industry um, and then kind of taking me all the way till today. I've always been passionate about, you know, how do we get more students to graduate? You know, how do we do that? And I think some of that is attached to this. Perhaps a smaller part, you know, getting students to graduate includes a lot more. But of those who do graduate, how do we get them to stay more longer? How do we get them to stay longer in the industry? Historically, one of the main reasons people leave the industry is because they're not making enough money. And I would say more accurately for many is they're not making enough money compared to what they thought they were going to make. And again, so their expectations haven't been set. They're hearing maybe the, the government numbers, but then they're hearing from the industry, oh, no, no, you know, six figures, you can do this, you can do that. But we don't have enough context. We don't have enough, like, well, how do you get there? Like, what are the steps? And I know some are giving them, you know, it's, it's not that everybody is failing in this, but collectively as an industry, we, we just don't have enough information. And then along the way, how do we fill in the gaps and skills and knowledge needed to succeed in the early days, that first three years where we lose so many people? You know, what do we have to do? Because that's something we've just kind of left it. You know, schools are schools and salons are salons. The salons have been cutting education. And, and again, we kind of have, you know, things we're throwing back at each other, but we're not talking about the problem. We're not addressing the problem. We're not doing anything to help this really very much at risk group of people um, to get through more successfully so they can have sustainable careers. Um, and I think, you know, that is just so, so important. Then I would add two more things, last two being finances, personal and professional. Because again, people who understand money, their personal money, their professional money, they're a little bit different sometimes. To have financial literacy in a way that can help support your career sustainability, that you're managing your money, you're understanding your money, you're understanding where you're going with all of it, that's really, really vital. And then lastly, because this is the second reason people leave their careers, how do we inspire professionals to take good care of the two most important tools they have? And that is the mind and the body. And the salon is rough on both of them. Salons, the work that is done in the salon every day, it's, it's tough on mental health. And it's certainly tough on the physical body. And so you know, how do we do more to help everybody have better careers? How do we do more in collecting information around all of these topics and most specifically around income um, over the life cycle of careers so people have a better understanding of what to expect um, in the careers that they have? And also that they, they have more information to make choices about future directions for their careers. So, all right, I'm going to stop here. I hope I gave you some good insights. Uh, more importantly, I gave you something to ponder. I hope that you'll visit me over at socialbeautymakers.com. Again, that's socialbeautymakers.com. Free e-newsletter over there. And by signing up for it, you get early access to the podcast. It comes out 24 hours earlier. You also get information on 
other things. I occasionally do some articles and, and really importantly coming up, um, you'll be receiving information on a new kind of hybrid event um, coming this fall, in-person event, online event. I'm very, very excited about it. Um, more coming out very quickly on that. Just about to make a public announcement. If you like the podcast, I appreciate a rating, review, subscription, or best yet, share it. Share it. <laughs> um, and, and it helps others to find the podcast, all of those things. And uh, finally, once again, I appreciate you so much for tuning in. I'm Gordon Miller. I can't wait to share more with you again next time. Next time.